I don't mind if somebody criticizes me. In fact, I, if it's good criticism, I welcome it. You know, even if it's even if it is cutting, it might hurt for a second, but I'll take it. What I cannot stand, uh, what deflates me quicker than a balloon, a pop balloon, is if somebody says you're not capable. For the last of our four-part series on the temperaments, the spiritual lives of cholerics. to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for today's episode, Joe Heschmeyer, and I'm here with my friend Father Alex Cradler to talk to you about uh, the choleric temperament. Father Cradler, thanks for coming on. Happy to be here, Joe. Thanks for having me. So if you would, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and then maybe how you got uh, into learning about the temperaments a little more. Sure. So I'm a diocesan priest for the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph. I've been a priest for nearly four years now, but it's about three and a half. It'll be four in June. Uh, currently, I'm an associate at Our Lady of Good Counsel Parish here in Kansas City in the Westport area, and I also act as a judge for the tribunal, the Diocese of Kansas City, St. Joseph. So, two somewhat different apostolates, but they're both rewarding in their own way. So, you actually get to spend Valentine's Day, and that's the day we're recording today, uh, dealing with broken marriage. Yeah, that's there's a bit of... I don't know if we want to say irony or perhaps divirony. I'm not sure, but yeah, to do to declare marriage as null on Valentine's Day, there's something, there's a joke there somewhere. I think. Yeah. Well, you were saying before the show that there's kind of a, an interesting counterbalance with the heaviness of the tribunal and the lightness of parish life. Can you say maybe a couple words on that? Sure. So there are some days in the tribunal where where it's heavy. I mean, you're reading broken marriages, you're reading failed marriages, or, or traumatic events in people's lives, and that that's. It's sad. It's sad to hear what people went through. Um, the best part about that, though, is to be able to declare, yeah, this marriage was null from the beginning. That can that can be very healing for a lot of people. But the benefit to being in the parish at the same time is that when you've had a heavy day in the tribunal, there are plenty of wonderful families that, that welcome you into their home afterwards, and you can see beautiful families and marriages, and, and there's hope. And um, and so the, I think that the parish life and the tribunal life both, uh, they balance each other out and they make for a fulfilling assignment. Excellent. Speaking of balance, let's talk a little bit about the four temperaments. Let's do it. Yeah. So you have some exposure from the parish level just with this, right? Regarding the four temperaments? Yeah. I do. So I was introduced to the temperaments, uh, as early as high school, I think. I don't remember if it was brought up in a religion class or if it was, uh, I didn't take psychology. I don't remember how I, how I learned about them. But I thought it was interesting because of the insights they provided. Mm -hmm. And um, we learn more about them in the seminary as a helpful as a helpful understanding of one's own personality and the personality of other people. It's easy to approach every other person as if they think and act the way that you do. Yes. Um, but through an understanding of the temperaments and other personality uh, diagnostics, it's it uh, helped to open up my horizon to see that not everybody comes from the same place, in quotes, if you will, that I do. And um, when I know that, it allows me to be more patient, understanding, and hopefully a better priest towards them. And just a better human being. Exa- like, exa- yeah, better yeah, exactly. Catholic, a better person. Sure, sure. All across the board. You know, and it's especially, that's a good insight, uh, because cholerics are in particular associated with being impatient towards other personality types. Guilty. 
Uh, whereas, yeah, you know, charged. <laughs> absolutely. There's this sense of this is the most efficient, orderly, structured, logical way. Yep. Why isn't everyone else on board? What's it's, wrong with them and all their emotions? It's like you're, you know, Joe, you're, you're telling me the story of my life right now. <laughs> and I didn't get it for the longest time. I just yeah. did not understand. I thought that if somebody wasn't acting the way that I was, it's because they knew something that I didn't. Or, right. um, or they just didn't, or, or, yeah, that they didn't know what I knew, or right. some kind of weird. Like I don't understand why you're not doing this. <laughs> this is this is so logical. This is why so this you, is yeah. so incredible. Why would you make this harder than it has to be? Or what are you doing? You're crazy. Or why are you wasting my time? Or, or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about some of these sure. pros and cons. Okay. Uh, so just like last week, we're going to be looking at Father Jordan Amon's book, and he's got this great little section. Just a few pages that yes. he really just gives a nice little 20,000-foot overview. Yeah. Very clearly laying out uh, his description. Everyone's got a different roadmap. But one of the themes that we've been hitting on these four weeks is that it's, it's the beginning, not the end of a journey. Both virtue and the temperaments have this have one thing in common, and that it was the theory that it, it's dependent upon the material aspect of man. So virtues being a stable quality... Uh, also require acts of the will, and some virtues, finding the mean between the two extremes, requires the overcompensation for the other extreme to find the mean because of man's material disposition in the first place. Okay, explain to listeners what's meant by man's material disposition. Meaning that we are both body and soul. Mm, yes. Not just soul, not just body. And so the intellect helps form good habits in the body. There's a material aspect to everything that we do. It's like muscle memory for learning yeah. an instrument. Uh, there's we call we call a pianist who can play complicated songs with ease a virtuoso, someone who's virtuous, mm, yeah. because he has the proper training that's been enlightened by his intellect. So it's a body soul thing. So Aristotle, um, certainly a huge proponent of the dualism of man, uh, yeah. soul and body. Also, that was a huge uh, factor in his in his theory of virtues, and the temperaments play a huge part in that. That's yeah. a great point. I mean, that you really biologically may have some different uh, irascible, you know, sensations. Like you might be experiencing this in a different way bodily Correct. than someone else is. Exactly. And that was the theory that, uh, forget, you know, I apologize if I'm incorrect on this, but the, the sanguine has, the theory was, has more blood around the yeah. heart. It's the good. choleric, what was it, more bile around the liver or yeah. kidneys or something? Choleric and melancholic are two different types of bile, yellow and black. Yeah, yellow and black bile, and right? Phlegmatic is, is phlegm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it was the idea that, that uh, the material composition of one's body is also going to affect his or her personality. Right. And even though they were wrong about the specifics, you know, Correct. which things it was, in terms of the idea that there's a biological aspect to who you are. Right. And that's going to impact your personality. I mean, and we know this in other areas. Right. Like if someone's in a bad mood and you find out they haven't gotten a lot of sleep. Yes. Well, you know, well, okay, well, you're a bodily creature. Exactly. You need sleep. And when you don't have that, yes. your mood starts to change. Yes. And so, so much of what we talk about with mood, we act as if we're disembodied angelic creatures Not so that don't have to take so. care of the body. That's right. That's absolutely right. So I think that's uh, that's important to keep in mind in these discussions. The facts may not have been 100% accurate, but the principles were certainly there. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to describe it. Well, let's dive in to the specifics of the choleric. So quick recap. A choleric is someone who uh, reacts to external stimulation uh, more quickly, and it tends to produce a more enduring reaction. Um, we talked uh, in the last episode, actually, about how St. Ignatius of Loyola was probably a choleric. He ends up having this great transformation of life uh, after being hit by a cannonball. He has this real sense of like striving for greatness and 
kind of going after it and and you know even in the face of uh all of this danger and all this these are kind of classically choleric traits uh saint paul also seems to have been uh, a great choleric he's when he has a principle in view he pursues it uh even ruthlessly Mm -hmm. which is one of the things we'll hear cholerics maybe on the downside Mm -hmm. so we see him killing christians yes but then it takes surprisingly little given that for god to set him in the other direction right and to have him just as eagerly right. uh, going up. This isn't him uh, being slow to respond to things, but nor is it him letting go of principles uh, prematurely. So right. like St. Peter seems much more sanguine, where he responds to things quickly, but then sometimes is too quick to change his mind on things and, right. and goes in, in the opposite direction yep. much too quickly. So there's a fast response in both cases. But with Peter, so often... He kind of let it go. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I'll follow you to the death. I deny you three times. Right. That sort of thing. You yes. don't see that kind of instability in Paul's personality. Uh, what you see is in an almost ruthless commitment to to good principles or bad principles, depending on, on the situation. Yes, I agree with that analysis 100%. I think it's important to, to note that both sanguine and choleric are considered extroverts. Yeah. Uh, which have been described in, in different ways. One is um, that the extrovert gets his or her energy from being around people. Another way of describing it is that extroverts tend to process things out loud. I think that's the best That's the best one, yeah. yeah. Because a lot of people find being around a crowd exhausting at a certain point. Of course. Whether, whether you know, so people think, oh, well, if I'm, if I'm at a gala for two hours, I'm exhausted at the end. Well, everyone is. Duh, yes, of course. Right, but if, if you are presented a problem and you work it out out loud to the other person yes you're an extrovert in the Certainly. sense we mean here that's right and i, I agree with that so this is with saint paul and saint Ignatius of loyal that i can that uh i can relate to in my own life is once once an idea gets in my head or rather it's not so much an ideal an idea as it is an ideal maybe that was I, that was a mistake i mean to say that but perhaps it was um intended or or a principle or some type of maxim that I can get behind it's all or nothing like that it's yeah. as clear as day and it becomes it becomes a principle by which I make my decisions so uh, for instance uh, as, as a Christian and as a priest if uh, if I had in my mind the discernment of a vocation, um, thinking, you know, my own vocational discernment to the priesthood, the the syllogism went something like this. Even just saying syllogism, not all the temperaments would even go that far. Right. But that's 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 a given. That's a sine qua non. You got to have a syllogism. It was something like, I think God is calling me to the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to go to the seminary to figure it out. Therefore, I'm going to the seminary. I mean, that's not a great syllogism. But the idea is that. If this, then this, yeah. then this, right? Yeah. And that's how I make decisions. Yeah, you, you kind of logically deduce it. And once you have a few kind of guiding stars, yes, you can just drive ahead. Yes. What, what happens, at least in my case as a choleric, is uh, if I understand something to be true, then I have to wait for my emotions to catch up one way or the other. Wow. It's like I make, okay, this is true. This is what I'm doing. Oh, but I'm a little scared. Who cares? It's true. Go for it. Or I'm happy. Oh, well, that's great. That's gravy. You know. But or, you're not doing it because you're happy. No, you're not. not you know. No, no, no. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, if there are decisions that are made, and I look back and I think that might have been a mistake, then I can examine the emotions because those are important. Yeah. 
But Kalak wants to admit that they're not important. They're just something that kind of tags along like the end of a train. Mm-hmm. But um, but as we mature and uh, learn more about our personalities and other personalities, you begin to see that the integration of the emotions, again, as a material part of who man is, body and soul, they're very important for who we are. But I wouldn't say that they're in any way involved in even minor decisions that I make in That's my life. That's fascinating, yeah. Like not even at all. So is one of those areas then of like maybe coming to the logical appreciation that, that emotions can, can provide valuable uh, content? I gave credence to emotions when I heard a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas, who's my man, uh, and he said that the passions or emotions well-ordered are a means for discerning the will of God. Beautiful. Yes. And, and I like how, how much you analyze that very analytically. Okay, I trust this person. Yes. He says this, therefore I'm going to believe that the emotions aren't. But right. you weren't just like, well, this fills me with great joy. Therefore. No, no. <laughs> I mean, again, that oftentimes those are in tandem, but that's just something I appreciate. Not, not apart, but distinct from the truth itself. So the reason why I'm such a huge fan of St. Thomas Aquinas isn't because I have some kind of emotional connection with the man. I never met him before. I'm sure he's a great guy. <laughs> Um, but rather, um, the church has said that St. Thomas Aquinas is the common doctor, right? We can basically mm-hmm. take, take to the bank everything that he said. Obviously, it's not the Gospels, but still, if you're going to read one guy, read him. And that's important because Christ said that the popes have the authority to declare such things. And Christ, of course, is the Son of God. So therefore, my, my appreciation of St. Thomas Aquinas is per action, and it's because Christ is the Son of God. Beautifully put. Right. That That's what it comes down to. It's not because I happen to think that St. Thomas was right. It's rather, no, this this authority, God himself, by means of his vicars, have said this is an authority. And therefore, I'm all about it. Because it will be a good way of learning the truth. That's a great way to describe it. So, a quick overview. Now, we already gave a little bit of an overview of the choleric temperament. But I want to share with you Father Jordan Amon's overview. Okay. He says, persons of a choleric temperament are easily and strongly aroused, and the impression lasts for a long time. Theirs is a temperament that produces great saints or great sinners. And while all the temperaments can contribute to sanctity, the choleric temperament is outstanding. Okay, no pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just be an amazing saint. If you're a mediocre saint, you're a bad choleric. Exactly. Then there's something wrong with, with you being a choleric. Yeah, it's um, that quick reaction I've noticed that a lot, not because I'm aware of it myself, but because other people have made me aware of it. That And so we, we talked about this briefly before, and that's how these, these tests or these distinctions give insights for me to my own personality. But they also help me realize that not everybody thinks and acts the way that I yeah. do. And again, that doesn't make sense. I... I know that that's true, but I don't understand it. It's a strange, like, I don't understand why not everybody would go about the same thing the way that I do. And so when I tell people, logic like... Logic is so logical. Well, I mean, and it's not like, I don't think it's like nerd alert, but it's but to me, I just think that this is obviously what you have to do. But somebody else of a different temperament would say, like, obviously that's not what you're going to do. Think about this person's emotional needs or think about... Um, the effort that might be involved or think about the other opportunities or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that my way is, is objectively the best because I'm sure oftentimes it's not. But um, but I don't I didn't appreciate the fact that I often wear my emotions on my sleeves. Or if somebody says something to me that I don't like, I do instantly react. And that's something that I've had to curve. 
Yeah. You know, that's something that I've had to check. That's something where um, when I feel like somebody is saying something to me and they're wasting my time. <laughs> and I know that sounds really harsh, but rather it's you've made it very clear that you've got a meeting in five minutes and they're talking to you about something that isn't important at all. It, it's very difficult for me to call back those bodily cues that says, I want nothing more than to stop talking to you right now. <laughs> it's yeah. difficult. Um, and other personality types may have no problem yeah. engaging in the gift of gab. And like, I don't get that yeah. at all. Any type of, unless I'm with a very close friend and we're just, we're just chatting it up, any type of talking for the sake of talking gets me going. I can't handle it. Gives you going in a negative way. In a negative way. Like, there has to be a purpose to this conversation. Otherwise, let's just go do something else. Perfect. Well, let's make sure this has a purpose. I'm sure it does. So, positive attributes. (laughs) Uh, Number one, great energy and activity, sharp intellect, strong and resolute will, good powers of concentration, constancy, magnanimity, and liberality. Nice. I do appreciate that word liberality. I think that, that that is accurate because, again, as a Catholic priest, it's my duty to hand on the entirety of the treasures of the Catholic Church. Well, can you explain to listeners what liberality means in this context? In this context, what I understand and mean by it is if the Church says it's good, then who am I to say otherwise? Hmm. I think the other aspects, the sharp intellect, everything else you've already illustrated and maybe alluded to. Okay. Why don't we move on to the second Choleric persons are practical rather than theoretical. They are more inclined to work than to think. Now, I thought that was an interesting claim, given that he just talked about the sharp intellect. Let me flesh out the rest of what he says. He says, inactivity is repugnant to them, and they're always looking forward to the next labor or to the formulation of some great project. Mm -hmm. Once they have set upon a plan of work, they immediately set their hand to the task. Hence, this temperament produces many leaders, superiors, and apostles, It is the temperament of government and administration. Government, okay. Um, Yeah, so I think that perhaps we can make a distinction between the choleric and even the melancholic. I'm not going to go phlegmatic. I'm going to go melancholic. So it's my understanding, and I could be wrong, obviously, that the melancholic enjoys the act of thinking Mm -hmm. and pondering and, and speculating. It takes great joy in that kind of activity. As a choleric, I take great joy in figuring things out and coming to understand them so as to be able to act more virtuously upon them, to be able to do a given task more efficiently um, or just plain more quickly or to get a greater degree of success. Like I think in order to understand, in order to do better. That makes sense. Yeah, but it's not just knowledge for the sake of its own no. Good. <laughs> it is, but it's not. Be only in so, far, so if we're talking about the kind of knowledge that is purely speculative, like philosophy, mm-hmm. it's it's for its own it's for its own good. But at the same time, as a choleric, I wanted to study philosophy so that I could become a better man. Yeah, that's a good point. It's not just but even all, there. You can see a practical application. Exactly. Even it. then, even though it's not practical, strictly speaking, in quotes, it still had a purpose to it. You aren't just going to get a degree in cosmology just to know the cosmos. Better. Absolutely not. That would a huge waste of time. <laughs> that would be that. And that. And when you said there, like the idea of inactivity is repugnant. Absolutely true. Absolutely one hundred percent true. Even when I'm sitting down, I have to think about. Okay, am I going to pray now? 
Uh, am I going to pray because I need to pray? I'm going to pray because I want to grow in sanctifying grace. Or I just want to talk to the Lord that I love. Or am I going to read this book? If I'm reading this book, is it the best book for me to read? Should I be reading it for 15 minutes or 20 minutes? Should I have multiple books going on at the same time? <laughs> this sounds exhausting. I'm sure a lot of It's not exhausting. <laughs> it's I thrive on this. But here's an example. Here's an example of this. Um, this is a wake-up moment for me. A very good friend of mine, Father Austin Gilstrap, Diocese of Nashville, he and I were on a vacation along with a bunch of other guys. And uh, we were sitting around the dinner table and uh, he asked me something like, do you, do you love such and such or whatever? And I responded to him by saying, well, I apprehended it as a good and I desired it, if that's what you mean. And he just looked me in the eye, like he turned and looked me in the eye and he said, dude, read a novel. <laughs> and he had me. Like I, yeah. was, I, was making a, I was making a stupid seminarian joke, right? right? But, but at the same time, I kind of wasn't. And... Um, it's tough for me to read novels. It's yeah. really hard for me to read novels unless it's a classic, unless it's going to illustrate some type of, uh, you know, insight into humanity or culture that I can use. It's hard for me to just sit down and read a novel that I would enjoy. I have to tell you, it was in seminary that yeah. I picked up reading novels. Yes. And it was because a priest told me it made you a better priest to read things exactly. like Anna Karenina. So yes. it's still this very, like, I was, I was like reading these to grow as a person. Exactly. Not just to pass it's the time. It's not just simply to enjoy an idol and like, oh, I would love to relish in the world of novels. Are you kidding me? They're not <laughs> real. Like, what are you doing? If you're going to read them in order to be a better person, then that's great. But maybe you should read history instead. Yeah. Or theology. So, I, yeah, I went through a kick where for like two years I read just Russian novels and that was wow. it. Because Tolstoy and Dostoevsky... I understood how they would make me better. Okay. And, but yeah, it's that, that same thing where I meet, like, my wife loves reading yeah. fiction. And I, I, she's much more of the melancholic temperament. So it's, it's interesting seeing that, that difference. So I've grown an appreciation through it vicariously. Mm -hmm. uh, I can kind of understand it now, but I, I totally relate to what you're saying. Although I'm going to anticipate many listeners will not. Yes. Well, <laughs> thanks be to God, because it, we need people that appreciate beautiful things someone's gotta buy all those books yes <laughs> all right number three in terms of the positive traits these persons do not leave for tomorrow what they can do today but sometimes they may try to do today what they should leave for tomorrow if difficulties and obstacles arise they immediately set about to overcome them and although they often have strong movements of irascibility and impatience in the face of problems once they've conjured these movements they acquire a tenderness and sweetness of disposition that are noteworthy. Well, uh, Father Alman, I'm not sure if I would use those same words, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I would say that um, I am prone to impatience. If I think that something can be done in five minutes, I'm going to get very upset if it's done in eight or nine. You know, it just doesn't. It doesn't make sense, and that's kind of like the biggest deciding factor. It doesn't make sense. So. This whole um, putting off, rarely putting off for tomorrow what can be done today, or perhaps doing today what can be done tomorrow. Guilty, except that if it doesn't make sense for me to do it today, and I have plenty of time to do it tomorrow, then I will. Or if I can say more logical, because more logical, right? So let's use the tribunal for instance. If um, let's say let's say it's two p.m. and I have one more case to judge. And I try to leave the office by 4.30, but I know this case is going to take me three hours. 
I would rather get that case done that afternoon and stay late if it would save me a trip in tomorrow. Yeah, that's, that's a good example. I mean, but I, but I, th- I think that, so I think that most people would do that, but maybe not. Maybe some people would say, well, no, I, I'm just going to call it quits now. I'll come back in tomorrow refreshed or whatever. Like, no. It might at least be more of a struggle. Even if someone else sees that as a logical thing to yeah. do, they might say, I'm so exhausted. I'm so burnt out. that." And, and the caller would say, that doesn't matter. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It doesn't yeah. matter how you feel right now. Just get it done. Yeah. Just get it done. <laughs> Which is not good. Because especially if, if you have to do an intellectual work, it could be a, a hindrance to the process. And I could somehow make it more inefficient. You know? That's true. If it's something that you you really need to be bright and fresh and yeah. well-rested for. This is, that again, that part where we tend to think of ourselves as disembodied and ignore yes. the needs of the body. Right. So it's a double-edged sword there. But um, it is it is true that um, I can get riled up real fast. I think, like I've said, I've intentionally tried to do a better job of not wearing my emotions on my sleeves. But if something strikes me, it strikes hard. Yeah. It really does. And as much as I've downplayed the emotions, um, that's really what can get me as a choleric off the, off the rails. Is if is if I have a huge emotional blow or frustration or anger or whatever it is. Yeah. That that can kind of get things, uh, it can muddy the waters, right? And things become less clear. And then I think to myself, that's where the extrovert comes out. Like, what am I supposed to do? How do I deal with this person? How do I deal with the situation? What's the best thing to do? What's mm-hmm. the most logical thing? I, no matter what I do, I'm still upset, etc. And then when that cools down, then things are okay again. Um, that's a good clarification and I think yeah. it's also interesting that the emotion he went to is this yeah. classically choleric one like just melancholics tend to be associated with sorrow yeah uh, sanguines tend to be associated with joy and yeah. cholerics tend to be associated with anger yeah and I would say as funny as this sounds that of all the emotions I'm best with anger what do you mean best what I mean by that is if I'm feeling sad. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because I'm not allowed to feel angry. Interesting. Yes, it's because it's because somehow I've told myself you're not allowed to be angry right now. Being angry is cathartic because yeah. it, it 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 puts a perceived injustice into the spotlight. I can look at it. Uh, I attempt to look at it objectively, and I can say this is a situation. This is not what that person meant. This is what that person meant. This is how I received it, etc. But if I'm sad, that's because for some reason I don't feel like I can be angry. Would this be something like you look at the situation objectively, feel like you maybe weren't in the right, but that there's still the residual mm. frustration? Or what, what would be sort of a situation where you don't have the, the right to be mad I think angry? I think a situation would be if... If, uh, if an important relationship were in jeopardy or if I felt like it were in jeopardy. Like if I, if I felt like me being angry with a person would cause an important relationship oh, I see to, to be in damage or yeah. jeopardy, then I would say, okay, I'm not going to be angry. I'm not going to broach this topic right now, at least not in this way. Mm-hmm. And so that could leave me with a sense of sadness. And it's, that's not a good place to yeah, be. Yeah, it's fascinating because usually they talk about it like psychologists talk about it the other way around. Sadness as a primary emotion and anger as a secondary emotion protecting against sadness. Where people will will act out in anger 
because they're feeling a deep sadness. And you're saying for you, it's, it's just the other way around. I think, yeah, I mean, I guess I don't want to talk around myself, but I think that I would rather be angry than sad. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you're right, I think the anger is a defense against the sadness. The sadness is a greater evil for a choleric than anger is. Yeah, that makes sense. Because it's, again, anger is more tied to activity. Yes. And you don't like inactivity. I don't. Whereas if you're, you know, you're drawing your sword and you're going to war in a certain way. Yeah. Sadness has a has a tone of defeat about it. And and for a caller, okay, this is something else that I thought was very uh, insightful. And that's that um, I don't mind if somebody criticizes me. In fact, I if it's good criticism, I welcome it. You know, even if it's, even if it is cutting, it might hurt for a second, but I'll take it. What I cannot stand, uh, what deflates me quicker than a balloon, a pop balloon, is if somebody says you're not capable. Fascinating, yeah. You're not capable. You're not, you're not uh, qualified. You're not good enough. If I hear that and they mean it and that goes into play, like for instance, the bishop, we have a wonderful bishop. He's never said anything like this to me. But if he said, you know, Father Kreidler, I just don't think that you have the capacity to be a parish priest. I would say I, I would be done. I would be deflated. It's like what what do you what do you mean? Yeah. What do you mean? And so my initial response to that would be like, well, I'm obviously gonna do everything I can to be an outstanding parish priest. Like I'll read all the books I have to, I'll go to all the classes I need to, just to prove you wrong almost. Yeah. But that but that's a type of sadness, a type of my ability to act in a logical way, I don't mean for that to sound like a robot, but my ability to act in an efficient, logical way has been taken away. And now what do I do? You know, what do I do? Great. Let me tie that into two of the things Father Amon's going to say when he talks about kind of the dangers or the traps. He says, uh, this is actually number two and three on the list, but they're so topical. I, I want to bring them up right now. It says, if colored persons are resisted, they may easily become violent, cruel, arrogant, unless the Christian virtues moderate these inclinations. And then he says, if defeated by others, they may nurture hatred in their hearts until they've obtained their vengeance. I wish I could say that's not true, but it <laughs> is true. That's exactly what it is. Um, that's That at least is the, is the initial reaction. Mm-hmm. That's the gut reaction. So... Um, the first one again, I remember the vengeance. If, this yeah, if, if resisted, you can become violent, cruel, and arrogant, unless the Christian virtues moderate these yeah. inclinations. So when I was a little kid, um, I used to be real good at comebacks. <laughs> Somebody would say something to me, I would be very quick to respond to them. However, it was often noted by my confreres that uh, my response seemed to be... Um, a, a greater degree. Yeah, disproportionately. You know, totally disproportionate. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, he just said, you have dumb shoes, and then you said something about his ability to do math. Like, that doesn't make sense, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, but it was. It's like, oh, you want to go? Yeah. Then you're done. You're bringing a gun to a knife fight. Exactly. Then you're done. Yeah. Then you're done. And the only way, if I feel, what did it say, defeated? By, is that what yeah, causes if, vengeance? Yeah, if resisted, you can become violent, cruel, and arrogant. If defeated, you can harbor... Uh, hatred until you've obtained your vengeance. Yeah, that's exactly right. And vengeance can come in a lot of forms, though. One of which is I can think of a situation when um, when I certainly felt betrayed. And as a choleric, I was looking for the logical explanation behind this. Like, I don't get this. I don't understand why this happened. 
Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of emotional things going on at the same time, which I'm not quick to admit, but it's true. And I was in a tizzy. I was in a downward spiral <laughs> for a, a long time. I mean, that's yeah. what I was talking about. Like yeah. it, it affects a choleric big time. I exacted my revenge by minimizing the importance of that from which I was excluded. Mm, sour grapes. Exactly. It was a mental revenge. It wasn't. I had. To, I didn't have to do anything external. But I had to completely demolish the relevance of the activity in my own mind. Wow. And then I got over it. And it's like, oh, we're great. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So if this podcast doesn't go well, you're going to be like, well, that was a stupid podcast anyway. If this podcast doesn't go well, I won't blame myself. I'm just kidding. I'm totally (laughs) joking. I'm totally joking. (laughs) Let's look at some of your other faults then. Yes, Uh, please. Hardness, obstinacy. Yes. Insensibility. Yes. Anger and pride. All of those and I want to I want to hone in on pride because yes. Father Hawk, in the other book that we've been using, okay. he says basically this is the entire battle for the choleric. Like if you win this battle against pride, yeah, with humility you can be an amazing saint. And if you lose this battle, you're going to be one of the worst sinners. Yeah. Like there's there's just not that much in between for you. For me, as a choleric. My understanding is that perfection is possible. It's attainable. One experiences it by growth, by new knowledge, by new skill, by acquiring these things. And so it, you know, it, it, it lends credence to the idea that perfection is in fact possible. And based upon whether it's nature or nurture, I'm not sure. But eventually you begin to learn that some people just aren't reliable. Some people don't have the same goals as you do. Some people are in or out. Um, some people are there all the time, but but again, they don't have the same kind of intensity or focus on the things that you do. So eventually you come to the conclusion that I'm on my own. I've got yeah. to do this on my own. I have to do this. And as a Christian, um, I think a big struggle for me is to realize that um, I have to take to heart all the time from the first letter of St. John. It's not so much that we love God, rather he first loved us. As a choleric, I want to do great things for God. And I want to say to him, look at the great things I've done yeah. for you. Look at these things. Look, look at how I've, stri- I, I've striven to, to do your will, uh, um, to make great achievements, to, to, to leave lasting legacies, to make a mark or something. like That's the tendency. But as I mature by God's grace in this vocation and as a Christian man, period, I have to realize that nobody wants a greater perfection for me than the Lord himself. And the perfection that I want for myself pales in comparison to the perfection that he wants for me and that he wants to give me. That's a crucial turn right there. Yeah, that he wants to give me, that I have to receive. And the worst part about it is that I have to receive it in my weakness. Not my strength. He wants to save me in my weakness, which I have done my very best to minimalize. I have worked excruciatingly, uh, painstakingly, uh, day in and day out to get rid of any weakness that I might have. And the worst part about that is that that's an attempt to minimize the salvation that God has in store for me. You're covering up the wounds through which he wants to enter. Exactly. Wounds, weaknesses, whatever. Like the idea of the choleric is that a perfect person doesn't have those. So we have to get rid of them. At least we don't have to be needy. We have to, we have to, if only I knew more things or did better things, then I would be good to go. 
but you're just you're you're kicking against the goad. It's uh, you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. Um, the point here is that the weaknesses, like Saint Paul himself, you know, you know the uh, the Second apostle, Second Cor- yeah. Corinthians, the apostle, the the choleric of the New Testament, perhaps. It's in my weaknesses yeah. uh, that God's that God's grace is made perfect. And this is someone who is a former Pharisee who yeah. had done. I mean, everything you're describing is what we associate with the Pharisees. This attempt to <clears throat> gain holiness, kind of by your own efforts, right? And just so much the temptation, especially when you can do kind of a good seeming job, at least in the externals. Take it till you make it. Yeah. And I'm just not making the connection as you mentioned. He was a Pharisee. Saint Paul was a Pharisee. Very interested in the law. I'm a canon lawyer. <laughs> When the bishop asked me, uh, hey, we might send you to get a license in something, what would you want to do? I said biblical theology because I love languages or moral theology Mm -hmm. because I love distinctions. It's very practical to practical theology in a sense. Um, But when he sent me over there, he said, keep your Latin up because you need canon law. So I threw canon law in there hoping that, you know, he wouldn't choose that because I didn't want it. (laughs) But I just said it because he had mentioned it. Response. Great. Do canon law. (laughs) And I was like, you kidding me? This is whatever. Fine, fine. Obedience, fine. Great. Let's do it. Let's go for it. It was providential because I love it. Wow. I love it. You're literally the first canon lawyer I've ever met who has said that, by the way. And so that's the thing is like it's a rare combination. There are plenty of people who love canon law but aren't canon lawyers. There are plenty of people who are canon lawyers but don't love canon law. It's very rare to find the combo. Wow. It's very rare. And I'm not saying I am nowhere close to being a great canonist, but I do enjoy the science. That's fascinating. It yeah. seems like it works well with this part of the personality, where there's with the healthy interpretation of the law right. without it being legalism. Yes. Like, there are some personality types that are so opposed to, I mean, even reading canon law sounds so like Ugh. exhausting. Mm-mm. But yeah, clearly not you. No. Facts, principles... Yeah, you know, it's what we believe put into 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 law. Here's here's what we believe, so here's what you do. It's fascinating. Excellent. It's great. Well, let's look at another of the dangers to watch out for. Colors can easily become ambitious and seek their own glory. Uh, I mean, it seems like it's simple in light of what we just said with pride. That mm-hmm. and because there's that desire for greatness. Yeah. Do you find it can take that form? I find that. Um, I find that it takes that form insofar as I, as I mentioned before, I shut down if somebody tells me that I'm unqualified or incapable. I also have a repulsion, like a violent repulsion to being controlled. Hmm. If I feel like I'm being arbitrarily controlled, I react very poorly. That's still something that I have to curb. Um, and that's part of this idea of ambition or um, it, it, you're right. It's right along with pride that we want greatness. We want the greatest possible mm-hmm. at all times, the reasonable greatness yeah. at possible at all times. Um, and so can that translate into career ambitions? It can, but then realism kicks in as well. And it's like, you know, as a priest, First of all, I love being a priest. It's essential to my identity. It's who I am. It's not what I do. It's who I am. And celebrating the Mass is the greatest blessing that I've that I've ever been able to receive. And as far as hierarchical ambition, a bishop can say Mass just as well as I can, and a cardinal and a pope. And so somebody told me once, 
with all reverence and respect due to bishops that bishops it's like confirmations and lawsuits you know like they're so mm-hmm. busy with the administration and and you know rarely is it very pastoral or 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 warm and fuzzy or or relating to people that you get in the parish life that it just doesn't seem very attractive having said that i do want to be the best priest that i can be yeah um, I want to be virtuous. I want to be a vessel whereby Christ can work through me, despite me, almost in a sense. Yeah. That seems like the positive way of directing that almost natural ambition to turn that over to an ambition for sanctity. That would be the goal. I mean, and really, once once a choleric, I think, becomes convicted of the truth of the faith, then there is no other goal. Sanctity is it. The Blessed Virgin wasn't a bishop. She right. wasn't a priest. She wasn't a deacon. And she and she's the holiest creature that God ever made. Yeah. The period. It, the, those things aren't required. It's easy in the choleric mind to to connect the two. That, right. oh, if I were a bishop, that would mean that I'm obviously in a higher state of perfection. Therefore, my my glory in heaven's going to be greater, and I'll be holier. No. I think even the Holy Family is a good corrective to this. Absolutely. The head of it is Saint Joseph, yes. who is the least qualified of the three. Yes. In, in a certain way. <laughs> right. And so you have Christ submitting to someone who's less qualified. Yeah. Because you talked about. Yep. Just submission being hard right. and being controlled being hard. Right. But I think behind that there's a sense of on some level thinking you know more than or are more qualified than the people above you. Right. Almost universally this is the at least the quiet choleric struggle. Okay. Not yep. just having a boss, but a boss you think you you know better than. Exactly. So just like I can approach Saint Thomas with confidence because of the approval of the authorities, mm-hmm. so too the promise of obedience isn't difficult. Yeah. Because in taking that promise, anything that the bishop is allowed to do, I mean, anything he's allowed to request or command of me according to canon law, again, it's a canonical obedience, then I know that's the will of God, and I'm, and I'm happy to do that. If I feel like an authority is stepping out of line or is making a decision that's arbitrary, that does not settle well with me, and that's an understatement. <laughs> it really riles me up. Good. I, I, just, I can't handle yeah. it. Um, yep. All right, well, let's look at the next one. Um, cholerics have greater patience than do the sanguine temperaments, but they may lack delicacy of feeling. They're often insensitive to the feelings of others, therefore lack tact in human relations. Enough said there. Yeah, that's it. I, um, I think that this comes out perhaps most clearly in the confessional for me. Mm. So here at Our Lady of Good Counsel, and if there's any parishioners listening, I apologize in advance if you know if you didn't know this about me already. We're blessed to have a ton of confessions. Mm-hmm. We have a limited amount of time to hear those confessions. And so in the confessional, I tend to be very efficient. So for instance, if someone says something like, you know, Father, uh, I was at this get-together a few weeks ago, and this friend of mine, her brother was there, and this brother uh, married this woman that I went to high school with, and it brought up a time <laughs> where, you know, she and I got together in high school, and, um, well, her cousin is now my neighbor, and this person was also at the party, and it was this wonderful. This is painful for me to listen I know, to. <laughs> but, and, then, and then, like, anyway, I think I may have spoken bad about this person, so, so uh, you know, I want to confess that. And I just... I'm like racking my head against the side of the confession. I just want to say gossip. <laughs> it's the word you're looking for. Gossip. gossip. Yeah. Gossip. That's all I need. That's all I need. And so sometimes I'll say like, okay, you know, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, that can be summarized in the word gossip. And, and next time, you know, I don't need the circumstances. I'd ask them if I do. 
Do you have any other sins? You know, just just things yeah. like that. And and thank goodness there's a grate. There's a grill right there. Because, again, wearing this emotion on the sleeves, reacting and things like that, I would have completely inappropriate reactions. I would just be like, sometimes I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I can't handle this. <laughs> because it's totally inefficient. I think you're going to have a shorter confessional line after everyone hears this. Well, I hope, <laughs> no, it, I hope it's the same quantity. Right. But we're coming. We're working on a, a guide for confession that talks about like what's necessary, what's not, etc. And it's all what's driving this in my mind isn't that I don't care to hear the story. It's just that if there's somebody behind this person that would right. like to go to confession doesn't have time, that's going to weigh on me. I've long thought it'd be more efficient to have a mortal sin express lane, but I think that might be well impolitic for certain reasons. Well, listen, I can't, I can't require anybody to manifest their conscience, but uh, <laughs> if they wanted to do that on their own accord, I'm not going to stop them. There you go. All right, so the last one, this one I'm going to warn you is a little long. Good. He's going to summarize kind of the overall thing. He says that choleric's passions, when aroused, are so strong and impetuous, they may smother the tenderer emotions and the spirit of sacrifice that springs spontaneously from more sympathetic hearts. Their fever for activity and their eagerness to execute their resolutions cause them to disregard others, to thrust all impediments aside, and to give the appearance of being egoists. In their treatment of others, they sometimes display coldness and indifference, not to mention impatience with persons who are less talented. It is evident from the foregoing that if the choleric person pursues the path of evil, there's no length to which he or she will not go in order to achieve a goal. I think that some people do express their concern for another by means of empathy, emotional empathy, emotional sympathy, compassion. Um, if I have a conversation with somebody that requires me to engage that, then, then I do my best. Mm-hmm to uh, imagine what it would be like to be in that situation. This is called cognitive empathy for anyone okay. listening. Okay. It's another valid form. And actually, okay. although this regularly gets looked down upon, yeah. studies show that people with cognitive empathy are actually more charitable in terms of all the quantifiable stuff okay. than people with strong emotional empathy. Yes. So like people in uh, big charitable projects, like if you're in a third world country yeah. amidst just horrible poverty, yeah. people with emotional empathy will often check out and become overwhelmed yeah. more quickly where people with cognitive empathy who are saying, this is a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah. But they're not feeling a strong emotional yeah. Uh, okay. I can actually do more good, as, okay. but we don't look favorably upon that in this culture. Sweet. Well, I'll take it to the bank because uh, <laughs> that's what it is. It's the uh, okay. This person saying this to me, I really want to be able to. I want to sincerely know that that uh, I care about this person, and I do. But I do so when I say out of principle. It's not because I don't care for the individual, but it's rather it's because I know that charity is good. Each one deserves to be to be loved, and I do my best to make that choice to love. So a choleric loves by doing. Mm. Some people might be able to, to relate well, to have the crying shoulder, and I would do that if it were necessary, if that's what, that, if that's what somebody wanted for their good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not your natural. No, my natural, if somebody is, if somebody came to me, um, like if a student came to me, I can't say this, if, if, uh, if my younger sister, let's say I was 12 years old, my younger sister came to me and said, um, she, she came to me crying. Mm-hmm. My first reaction wouldn't be, oh my goodness, are you okay? My first reaction would be like, 
who did this to you? What do I need to do? Yeah. Right? It wouldn't be, I'm going to console you and give you a shoulder to cry on. It would be, how do I exact my vengeance on the person that did this to you? That's a great distinction. And yeah. I want to also suggest that uh, being a man with choleric temperament is going to also play into that in some interesting ways. Like the classic uh, stereotype of men is that we tend to be more solution-focused sure. than empathic yes. or yes. wanting to talk about the problem. That's what We want to just jump to, okay, how do we fix this? Right. But it seems like there's probably a disproportionate uh, skew where I think men tend to be more choleric okay. uh, than women do. Okay. Typically. Sure. I mean, I can see that. There's a lot that goes into all of these things. But it's interesting to see the way those things might play right. uh, together. And, and and so the problem with that is that it could have just been that, that my sister in this case uh, was just having a bad day or mm-hmm. something. In which case, my initial response would be, well, why are you crying about it? <laughs> right. You know, and that's obviously not the right response. Oh, I think that um, – so we're talking about nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. I think that um, – my experience growing up is that I don't have any brothers. I have four sisters. So I really, if we call it a cognitive empathy, Mm -hmm. like that was a skill that I had to acquire at an early age. (laughs) Um, Because my sisters tended to be more emotional than than I was. And, uh, and that's perfectly great. I mean, like, again, those emotions are very important, but I had to learn to shut down that, why am I taking the time to listen to this? This doesn't make sense. Just stop being sad. Right. Um, and, and, and try to empathize or whatever, but then still have that, okay, what do I have to do to solve the problem? Yeah, being able to have um, the, the strength, the support, but then also hopefully being able to produce something productive at the end of it. We can say, what if we alleviate this problem? That's Even if the person doesn't need that in the moment, as yeah. a long-term solution, right? it may be a great way to fix the problem. Yeah. So let's look at the very last thing Father Amon says. This is his kind of roadmap. So given all the pros, all the cons that we've sort of seen, here's what he's going to say for how you can be a great saint. And I already mentioned Father Hawk basically says, be humble. Mm -hmm. Pursue humility with the the kind of vigor that you would pursue any great goal. Yeah. And you'll be a great saint. Yeah. The temptation there, of course, is you can get very proud about how well you're pursuing humility. Correct. That's why it's so much of a lifelong journey. Well, Father Amon says, colored persons can be individuals of great worth if they succeed in controlling and guiding their energies. They could arrive at the height of perfection with relative facility. In their hands, even the most difficult tasks seem to be brought to an easy and ready solution. Therefore, when they have themselves under control and are rightly directed, they will not cease in their efforts until they've reached the summit. Above all, they need to cultivate the true humility of heart, to be compassionate to the weak and the uninstructed, not to humiliate or embarrass others, not to flaunt their superiority, and to treat all persons with tenderness and understanding. They should be taught how to be detached from themselves and to manifest a generous love toward others. What are your thoughts? My thoughts on that, um, the, the, the first reaction that I had to that was... Um, if the choleric is directed, um, I cannot handle retreats. <laughs> I can't handle retreats because it seems like five days of just straight inactivity. Hmm. Just sit there and think about things. Can't do anything, can't read, can't study. You maybe go for a walk. So unless those retreats are directed, I know that's not wow. what he meant, but unless they're directed, I, I am a ticking time bomb. 
I'm gonna lose it. I leave those retreats way more exhausted than when I entered. It's bad. It's bad. Um, but two, at least for me, I can become so fascinated with lots of things that I end up being able to do a lot of things decently, but nothing very well. And so when I when I can focus on something, um, when I can make that the goal to the exclusion of other things, unless they help that goal, that's that's kind of when I'm at my best. So I need that I need that direction. The perseverance comes naturally to me. On some of these personality tests, they say, "Are you a person that that um, quits easily, gives up easily, or uh, goes to the end?" And um, when I read a question like that, it seriously pops in my mind: How could you ever justify quitting? Wow. Like that is not that is not acceptable at all in any circumstance, unless it becomes proven that that the direction is futile, that the goal isn't worthwhile, that you somehow mistake you, you had a mistake about what the goal was, and therefore it would make a lot of sense to not do that anymore. Well, that's not quitting. That's just a realization. Yeah. That's just a realization that this isn't worth doing anymore. All right. So yeah, what do we, what do you think of the advice to? Cultivate true humility of heart, to be compassionate to the weak and the uninstructed, uh, not to humiliate or embarrass others, and not to flaunt your superiority, and above all, uh, to treat people with tenderness and understanding. I think that uh, for the choleric, at least for me, if truth is what is most important, then humility is only unattractive if you don't understand it. Wow. Say what you mean by that, because I think that's a profound statement. What I mean by that is humility regards the truth itself. It's in no way a contradiction to to the truth. It's only a misunderstood version of humility. Um, oh, I'm no good. Oh, I'm the worst. Oh, woe is me. Oh, I'm, I'll never be good at anything. No, that's ridiculous. That's not humility. That's false humility. Right. And it's just as much a lie as pride is. So once the choleric intellect has been enlightened by, by faith, the truth of faith, then he, and I'm preaching to myself, I'm, I'm trying to convince myself of this, then he or she can realize that the true greatness that, that he is looking for is found in the meekness of Christ himself, is, is found in the words of Christ crucified, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In the greatest, what appeared to be the greatest failure of all time, uh, this, this, this man-god that we thought was the Messiah is now being crucified. Mm-hmm. How could this possibly be? Obviously, we were wrong. Au contraire, right? It was, it was the greatest act of love that's ever been accomplished, and our salvation was wrought, and it paid way for the glorious resurrection and our participation in that. I think the choleric needs to understand that humility is not a bottleneck. It's not an obstacle. It's not going to slow him or her down, but rather it's going to allow him to achieve what he's been striving to achieve from the very beginning. Yeah, St. Teresa talks about, St. Teresa of Avila talks about how humility is recognizing who you are in relation to God. Exactly, in relation to God and others, I would add. But yeah, that's the same thing. It's just the truth of the situation, and the truth will set you free. If the truth is what we're most interested in, then humility ought to be our primary virtue. Yeah. From, from which would come charity, from which we would realize that it doesn't matter what you do or who you are, or how good you are at something or what you know. If you don't treat other people with the same dignity that God gave them, which he gave to you, then you're no better than any other kind of criminal or sinner on the street. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. So 
I think also, you know, St. Paul, we talked about how he's got this seemingly choleric temperament, but yep. he has the most beautiful exposition of humility by saying to look at Christ, who is in the form of God, but doesn't view that as something to be right. grasped at, right. rather emptied himself, making himself equal to a slave. And like pointing to the humility Christ has, where he has infinite amounts more reason to boast than any one of us do. True. And if he can live out uh, the kind of voluntary lowliness yep. that comes with humility, yep. then surely that's something we should all strive for. We should all strive for it, and don't call me Shirley. Just kidding. <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. And, and and in tandem with that, he was also the one that wrote the, the hymn uh, of love. Uh, love is patient, love is kind, love endures all things, uh, charity. I mean, he also had that insight, a choleric. Why is he talking about? Why is yeah. he talking about charity? Yeah. He's talking about charity because it's so fundamentally important. It's the foundation of everything. It's not so much that we love God, rather He first loved us. I'm afraid my uh, listeners are going to start to suspect you're not, in fact, a robot after hearing that hey. last little bit. Well, good. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. Well, on that note, why don't you close us off in a prayer? Okay. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of the natures that you have given us, and especially the opportunity by our baptism to participate in your own life. Father, make present to us the sacrifice of your Son. Purify us of every defect. Help us grow closer and closer to you in love. May we love you above all things and our neighbor as ourself. Help us grow in virtue. Dispel the vice within us, Lord and draw us always closer and closer to your most sacred heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. podcast is an initiative of the Holy Family School of Faith Institute. To find out more or to see how you can contribute to our mission, check out www.schooloffaith.com.